It make me burn when I see you kill my people. And they do that, they don't care, but like it's legal. That's rapper Dion Thomas, a.k.a. Young Tally. Like many musicians, he's driven to make art by a hope for connection. For people to be able to listen to something and be able to relate and fully understand what it is that they listen to, that's what makes people become fans of your music when they understand your material. But Dion isn't like most musicians. As a person incarcerated in the state of Virginia, he doesn't have access to a recording studio. Instead, he's part of a small group of artists who record songs via phone calls and distribute them through a prison-only digital music service. This week on The Broadside, producer Charlie Shelton Ormond explores the influential, exploitative, and evolving world of music in Southern prisons. If you want to make music while incarcerated, don't expect to have any sort of blueprint. Access to music in prison is so all over the map. Zeb Larson is a freelance writer and historian. Recently, he dug more into what it takes for somebody to make music and fulfill an artistic passion while they're in prison. There are actually some prisons that have their own recording studios, but there's no consistency on a state-to-state basis, whether a jail or a prison might. There's not really a lot of consistency state-to-state, whether or not you'll have access to any instruments. And if you do have access to instruments, whether you could use them to record your own music, you're sort of at the mercy of just wherever you happen to land. I talked with Zeb recently about a couple pieces he wrote for the online magazine Scalawag. They're about the history of making music in prison and the kinds of obstacles people have to navigate. Zeb says the biggest avenue to get their music out into the world isn't your run-of-the-mill streaming site like Spotify or Apple Music. It's a platform made specifically for incarcerated people called JPay. JPay broke my brain when I started trying to work on this story because it was described to me as a messaging service, which like, okay, I can wrap my head around what that is. And and the easiest way to describe it there, if, you're, if you've never had to use it, is it's like an email service and you can include video and images. But the, the thing about JPay is it's a platform for incarcerated people. If you're in a system that uses it, and there are a number of states that use JPay, it's how you would download books, for example. You can download ebooks through there. Or music, more importantly. For many people, that's their music player. You can buy a song for a dollar and 49 cents a song, and then you have it permanently, at least until or if access to JPay is lost, in which case you lose all the music all over again. It's really a system that charges people about as much as it possibly can. Uh, my co-author, David Anarelli, every time I wanted to send Dave an email in the course of writing this story, it cost me 40 cents to send to him, and it would cost him 40 cents to reply to me mm. just every single time. That's the simplest way to understand JPay. is it actually really runs through so much of life if you're incarcerated in a state that uses it. And JPay is this platform where people can look through music, look through instrumental tracks, and then really build from there, making songs, making an album. And one person who uses JPay to do this is Dion Thomas. My name is uh, Dion Thomas. Everybody knows me by uh, Taliban, and but most people call me Tally for short. 
I've been going by that name since probably middle school, like seventh grade, but it's it converted into like my rap name when I started rapping when I was younger. So I'm from the Tidewater area of Virginia, uh, down there in Portsmouth. That's where I'm from, born and raised. And uh, just love music. I love making music, being able to express myself. It makes me burn when I see you kill my people. And they do it on camera like it's legal. Equality ain't gonna come from all that nigga. Dion Thomas, who who raps under the moniker Young Tally, he has a really interesting system. So he will go on JPay, find a 30-second sample, because because like old Apple, you could listen to a 30-second sample before you buy, get a feeling for like, okay, this is the beat, this is the rhythm that I want, I could work with this. He then picks out those tracks, sends them to his audio engineer, gets on the phone with his audio engineer, and as quickly as he can. He has to do this generally in one take because it's burning money the whole time. Both what he has to pay to JPay and to his audio engineer drop down rhythm and beat and rhyme and record a song that way. So I might find an instrumental up there this morning that they just put up there and I might tell another dude up here that right, hey bro, do DJ such and such got this instrumental album up there. He got 50 beats up there for $10. And out of those 50 beats, I might at least find at least five or 10 of them probably that I like or rap to. He might find five or 10 of them different beats that offer the same album that he rapped to. Between the two of us, we done found some diamonds in the rough, so to say. And then this is where things get really interesting, because you can also distribute your music through JPay, and that's what he does. So you have to basically find a distributor who works with JPay. He uses TuneCore. And what will happen is they'll take that song and then they'll distribute it through JPay. JPay keeps oh, 44 to 49% of all the money that comes off of it. But what happens is then Dion, as Young Tally, can sell his music directly to other people who are incarcerated. Well, mainly myself, like I tell my story and my experiences. I always enjoy writing music, and I write about like whatever I'm going through. Like right now, a record label would come to me and say, hey, we need a club hit. And I was struggling writing it because I'm not in the club atmosphere right now. You understand what I'm saying? So I strictly like write about my own personal experiences and the things that's relative around me. So no, everybody is interested in people who are incarcerated for what one reason or another. And musically, you typically think of riots, gang violence, uh, lockdowns, when you hear somebody making music, I rap about like everything that we experience in here. You know the real reason the people ain't fearing us because we retaliate by kneeling while they killing us. I see that fire in 2021. Young Tally released an album, it's called Presidential Felon. He recorded it while he was incarcerated. I wanted it to be an album like specifically for people who were incarcerated. To be like, yo, he's talking about everything. After his album, Presidential Felon, dropped, uh, it was on, on like the front page of JPay for a few weeks. So if you were logging into a JPay system, like you saw this guy, you saw his name, you saw you saw his stuff. But if you went anywhere else, I don't know how you would find him. There's just no algorithm or anything that would lead you to him unless you knew the name already. 
And like I say, not just the violence and the fighting and the extortion and all of the bull crap that comes with being incarcerated, but the having phone conversations with your kids to, you know, uh, to losing loved ones while you're incarcerated, to getting cars made and just everything, you know what I mean? For like any, it's not just a one track album. It's really like a whole embodiment. It created a weird bridge, I think, in some ways to the other music that I was really interested in, because there's this sort of otherworldliness to it. You you feel the degree of separation so keenly because he sounds so far away in any given moment. And I I think that's as much just a limitation of the recording technology he's got. He's got to work with a phone, so that's going to constrain the audio that you create. But it, it gives it a real sort of otherworldliness that I thought was just fascinating. And and lonely and sad. I really enjoyed listening to it. The metaphor of the stuff that I'm using is about stuff that they see on a day-to-day basis. And you just don't hear people make music like that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm African-American. I done had dudes that have, like, 14 Confederate flags tattooed on them. Like, man, I listen to your music every morning when I wake up. Because he understands, like, everything that I'm talking about, the day-to-day activities of getting you a tray and being dissatisfied with how the food up there looks. And things of that nature, you know what I mean? So I think for me, it's the material that I'm able to present and rap about things that people have never heard actually said in songs before. Coming up after a short break, we'll get into what happens when the people who hold the most power within a prison are also the ones holding the microphone. I'm Anita Rao, host of the weekly podcast Embodied. It's a show that no matter the topic dives into unexpected territory, like what it's like to first get an autism diagnosis as an adult, or how BDSM communities may change the way you think about kink. You'll meet folks who aren't afraid to question what we think we know about intimacy and who have some fascinating stories to share about their relationships. Listen to Embodied and let's take on the taboo together. Hey, this is Jared Walker. I'm an editor here at WUNC North Carolina Public Radio. Each week, I work with Anissa, Charlie, and the rest of the team here at The Broadside to bring you stories from this fascinating place we call home. But we can only do that with your support. So if you've enjoyed the reporting and original stories you've heard in the podcast, please donate by clicking the link in this week's episode description or go to wunc.org and click the donate button at the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thank you so much. Okay, now let's get back to the show. So, Zeb, you've also written about prisons and their influence on American music in general. Mm-hmm. How would you describe this connection, this relationship between our carceral system in this country and its influence on American music? You know, going back, and and it's very much as true today as it was in the 1930s or the 1920s, they've also been sources of sites of exploitation for cultural capital, as I think how I would put it, that there's a fascination with the musical experience of those who are incarcerated, and it can sometimes just be a sort of exoticism, you know, 
this person's incarcerated and here's what they're singing about. And it's sort of foreign and mysterious. You know, there's a sort of moral dimension to it, wanting to hear about people who have sinned, but are, you know, trying to go through some kind of redemptive arc. And then there's just the fact that they continue to make music and can be sources of sort of cheap labor that way. When I started on this piece, what I was really leading from was this knowledge of folklorists who worked in the South in the 1930s, probably the most famous of whom would be John Lomax and his son, Alan Lomax. They had a a mission from the Library of Congress to record music coming from African-American prisoners throughout the South. And they had settled upon this because they believed, and, and John Lomax was very explicit on this point, that that was going to be the best place you could find sort of, as I think he actually uses the phrase uncontaminated, sort of uncontaminated sources of African-American culture. You know, the idea being that they're incarcerated, they're not exposed to white popular culture. You're going to get it at the true sort of essence of African-American culture, whatever that might be. So from 1933 through 1939, 1940, they traveled all across the American South with the best recording equipment that you could find in the 1930s, which fit in a car, probably took up most of that car. And they recorded everybody who they could persuade the prison administration to let them get close to. So when the Lomaxes do step inside of a prison, what are some of the types of music that they might have come across? Well, a lot of it's going to be what we would call like field music or war callers. You know, and that arises as much out of sort of necessity because Southern prisons were also always places where people had to work. You know, they were farms in many cases. So you sing songs to try to get through the monotony and misery of the workday. If the work is more aggressive or fast-paced, then you want the song to match it. If it's slower, you're trying to give people a rest, you slow down the song. So they record of what they call a lot of like field haulers, but then they also will just kind of go up to anybody who is reputed to make music or know anything about music and ask them to record. This is another area where I look at what the Lomaxes did. And I say this as somebody who's always sort of loved that output. Like, I love the music, but I'm kind of, in retrospect, horrified by how they got at it. There was um, a prisoner. He went by Black Samson. He had a different name, but that was sort of the name he went by while incarcerated. And they kind of compel him to sing by suggesting that they would tell the warden that he was being uncooperative if he wouldn't sing any non-gospel songs, which, it, I mean, reading that to me was just, oh my God, that's so incredibly coercive mm-hmm. and, and gross. I don't know that all the recording sessions or even most of them went that way, but there was a very sort of aggressive spirit of let's find anybody who's known to sing or play the guitar and get them in front of the mic. And so with that skewed power dynamic, there is this thought maybe percolating in some folks' mind of, okay, if I gain enough notoriety, if I become popular enough, maybe that can help with my parole chances. And one example of this is the blues singer Leadbelly. Can you tell me more about who Leadbelly was and what his relationship was with the Lomaxes specifically? 
it's trite to say this, but it's actually kind of difficult to imagine what American popular music would look like without Lead Belly. Um, he's a blues singer. He comes out of Texas. He's a protege of another, not protege, but knew and was influenced by another famous blues singer named Blind Lemon Jefferson. And he is at various points incarcerated for different crimes. And he actually gets out of prison once and then is then reincarcerated, which is when he meets the Lomaxes. And he immediately jumps out to them as somebody who has a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of this music. And by all accounts, Lead Belly is somebody who was just a human jukebox. And he sort of becomes a pet project for the Lomaxes. They campaign for him to be pardoned and released. Music historians have gone back and forth on whether or not their influence was actually significant in getting him out of prison. But he does get out of prison shortly after that. And he is employed by John Lomax as a driver for a little while. Hmm. And then the two have an acrimonious falling out and never work together again. He has a he has a relationship of sorts with Alan Lomax after that, but I don't I'm not sure that he even speaks to John Lomax again. I think out of a sort of perception that he disliked the way that John Lomax seemed to be telling him how to have a music career. Mm-hmm. And after this departure, Leadbelly becomes enormously influential to the American folk music movement because at this point, white audiences are starting to become interested in this kind of African-American music and until his death in 1948, enjoys a very successful career as a musician. To me, it seems like this skewed power dynamic relationship between Lead Belly and Lomax is similar to what was going on simultaneously between wardens and other prison authorities and prison bands, who would then be going on tour for the most part for other people's entertainment and not so much coming back in the way of benefits to the incarcerated folks who were actually performing the music. Can you tell me more about... This context, the environment surrounding these prison bands, and who would be able to go on tour? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And that's an interesting point, I think. John Lomax does sort of exhibit some of the same traits that way. But it was common throughout the South for bands to tour. And Angola in Louisiana has always been sort of, I think, exceptional that way. Hmm. Um, just in the sheer number of bands that it could offer, you know, musicians would go and play at the governor's mansion from time to time. Texas, I think, offers a really interesting example of this. Uh, there was a radio program through the 1930s called 30 Minutes Behind the Wall. And the whole point of 30 Minutes Behind the Wall is that they would go and record somebody who was incarcerated who would, you know, play music and offer kind of a narrative about how they got to be where they are. This was done in no small part as just good PR for the Texas prison system, which I guess especially needed it in the 1930s. There aren't any archival recordings that exist of the radio program 30 Minutes Behind the Walls. But in the late 1930s, the Lomaxes recorded several songs at Goree State Farm in Texas, including this one of Hattie Ellis performing I Ain't Got Nobody. Sweet all the time. 
Out of that came a group of female musicians known as the Goree Girls, who made music and it tapered off gradually as its members won pardons. I don't think anybody's proved that they distinctly won pardons because of uh, their music, but all of them pretty much writing about them after the fact agrees that like members joined because they wanted to try to make a better case to parole boards that they were in the process of reforming themselves. And the Goree girls were fantastically popular to the point that some of the members would get marriage proposals from people who also presumably didn't know that they were incarcerated in the first place. And the sad fact of this is that as they left, none of them had a successful career in music. I Mm -hmm. I gather from many of them, they just kind of wanted to disappear into anonymity. But that commitment to music completely tapered off as they were able to reintegrate into society and to try to leave behind the experience of incarceration. Speaking of the Gory Girls, you spoke with a woman named Carla Simmons, who's a part of the group called Voices of Hope. Can you tell me more about speaking with her? So Carla uh, is incarcerated in Georgia and came into prison, was interested in making music, and this long-running choir has existed uh, where she's incarcerated that for a long time had, again, fairly onerous um, requirements for membership. It was sort of, uh, apart from just auditioning and needing to be able to sing, there were also, you know, sort of character clauses embedded in needing to participate. When um, I came into the system, um, I wasn't interested in the program because it was real, real, real churchy and you had to like follow all of these strict like moral codes within the institution to be um, allowed to even audition for the choir. It's directed by a woman named Susan Bishop and she started directing choirs and women's facilities in Georgia in the early 80s. But as maybe as her faith matured and as times changed, she she let off a bit. So like she was like, you know, people with tattoos and people who um, like uh, participated in homosexual relationships and people who had had like a DR history. Then the like the um, application process was widened to the larger population. And I had heard them do this acapella piece at a graduation that I was just blown away by. I mean, they sounded amazing. And so I went to her and I said, hey, I want to I want to be a part of that. You know, like, I want to sound like that. And she really described the experience of being in this choir that that travels around the state of Georgia singing fairly frequently. I mean, they're on the road actually a lot of the time. And as she put it, you know, she became aware of this sort of political dimension to it. They they showed up at an event where the governor was signing, the then governor of Georgia, was signing a bill and his wife was present. And he was um, signing a bill in this um, black Baptist church in like the poverty ridden part of Gainesville, Georgia. So we don't know where we're going this one time in particular. And we like get down into like basically the hood in Gainesville. And I'm like, what are we doing? Right. And we get there and the freaking secret service is there. And they like set us up, you know, and here comes the governor and we do this performance. And then he signs this bill, right. While his wife holds this like small black child and we're singing in the background. And I'm like, I'm not a Republican. <laughs> like, what, what are we doing? And, 
they were very much there to sing, sort of as part of the signing, and also to, again to drive home the you know the, the reforming nature of Georgia's prison system. You know, these women, you know, they came in this way, and this is what they're now doing. And she began from that to sort of question. I think a lot of the uh, what function the choir serves. I really saw in a new way the political tool. You know that we were for the state and the way that it it projected this image that, yes, as, you know, as offenders, as um, people who are in violation of social norms and social laws, that we had been reformed, right, rehabilitated and even redeemed by this sense of religious transformation and that we were in this way acceptable, you know, to minister, to do work in the public. And so it basically, it was me standing there like a puppet, you know, like the system worked for me. And it did not, and it has not, and the whole thing is just a farce, you know? So it, it is complicated. It was a very beautiful, enriching experience that did add life and strength to my very, very tough experience here. But at the same time, I knew that I was sort of making an exchange with myself and my values by participating in it. And I had to actively try to counter that with these opportunities to sort of speak the truth, to make sure that nobody um, misunderstood what was happening and to know that, that we were a really privileged, exclusive group of people who did not represent the people that, that didn't get to come along. So, Zeb, how did prisons shape American music? You know, how did these songs, how did they permeate out into the world and how did they influence other American music from your perspective? Again, to cheat a little bit and offer up that Lead Belly example, I think it'd be difficult to imagine American music without them, mm-hmm. um, in part because they offer such an interesting window even though it can be under extremely exploitative sort of terms, uh, to understanding folk music and what even folk music really is, it shines a light on our sort of own obsession with narratives of reform, but also this hunt for the exotic in music, which having written this and thought about it for the better part of a year, now I, I sort of approach my old obsessions a little differently. It says a lot of both about American music, but it also says a lot about what we're looking to consume and why we're looking to consume it. And I think at that level, you can't really understand American music without the experience of incarceration. I think in the same sort of way that audiences in the 1940s were hearing Lead Belly, who could who could sing about so many aspects of the American South that, like, if you're a white northerner, you probably don't know that much about. Lead Belly could offer that. You know, you can listen to Young Tally's music and have a lot of the same experience and walk away with a lot of the same sort of uh, an experience of incarceration and life behind bars. And that's really what he offers there. But it's also its own insight into sort of how we consume music in the 21st century and what it is we're looking for. Zeb, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you so much for having me. You can check out Zeb Larson's articles on JPay and the history of Southern prison music at the digital outlet Scalawag. We've dropped a couple of links in the show description. This episode of The Broadside was produced by Charlie Shelton Ormond. Our editor is Jared Walker. The Broadside is a production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Find us on your favorite podcast app and on wunc.org. 
If you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating, a review, or tell a friend to tell a friend. I'm Anissa Khalifa. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll be back next week.